Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo. The warmer weather means that Buffalo's vibrant musical scene is moving outdoors to local favorites like Canal Side, the Chip Strip, Allentown, Sunset Bay, and all of our parks. Rock, blues, jazz, alternative, and classical, it's all there, often free. I'm Peter Sabota. There's little doubt that hostility, discrimination, and harassment of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender persons occurs on college campuses. It's hard to avoid ongoing discussions about campus climate and what universities and colleges can do to prevent these experiences. When it does occur, and people witness it, who is likely to intervene, and in what context? In this episode, our guests, Dr. Adrian Dessel, Dr. Michael Woodford, and Kevin Goodman discuss their research exploring these questions and highlight the specific skills and attitudes that can be fostered to promote supportive heterosexual bystander involvement. Our guests provide guidance and recommendations for educators and practitioners interested in creating and promoting inclusive environments for LGBT persons. Adrian Dussel, PhD, LMSW, is Associate Director of the Program on Intergroup Relations, University of Michigan, and lecturer with the School of Social Work. Her research focuses on attitudes and prejudice reduction, most recently on topics of religion, Arab-Jewish conflict, and sexual relational orientation. Michael Woodford, PhD, is an associate professor with the Lyle S. Hallman Faculty School of Social Work at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario, Canada. His research addresses the social exclusion and inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and or queer people. Dr. Woodford also studies heterosexist attitudes, support for LGBTQ civil rights, LGBTQ allyhood and youth empowerment, and faculty support for LGBTQ content in social work programs. Kevin Goodman is a PhD candidate in the departments of psychology and women's studies at the University of Michigan, with emphasis in social personality, organizational and community psychology. His research focuses on the experiences and methodological issues surrounding intersections of gender, sexuality, and racial identity, especially in educational contexts. His research interests also include intergroup relations, discrimination and sexual harassment, diversity in higher education, empowerment, critical consciousness, activism, and social change. Our guests were interviewed in February of 2016 by Dr. Diane Elzey, Associate Professor here at the UB School of Social Work. Hello, my name is Diane Elzey and I am an Associate Professor and Director of the MSW program at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. I am very excited to be talking today with Dr. Adrian Dessel, Dr. Michael Woodford, and Mr. Kevin Goodman about their recently published study on discrimination targeting lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender students on college campuses. Adrian, Michael, and Kevin, thanks so very much for your willingness to be interviewed today. 
Why don't we start by each of you talking a little bit about how you became interested in this area of research? Okay, so I will start. This is Adrienne Dessel, and I can say that I became interested in this research based on previous research that I've done. I'm very interested in overall looking at prejudice reduction and bias reduction, and in particular, interrupting bias and prejudice and harassment, not only for LGBT populations, but a number of different groups. And I'm also very interested in translational action-oriented research. So how can research that we are doing how can it inform practice? How can it inform policy? And uh, I think we will probably talk about some of that at the end. And this is Michael here. So in terms of my interest in this topic, my broader field of research looks at issues of discrimination and inclusion for sexual and gender minorities with a focus on students and the role of campus climate as campus climate has become a very big topic in recent years and what i try to do in my work in the broader work is look at the nature of campus climate both behavioral or experiential and also psychological climate but then most importantly looking at what the potential consequences are and what then institutions can do. So drawing on this, the same sort of commitment to action and what we can do about that is an interest in safe spaces and allyhood. One of the things we know is that ally programs are growing in popularity on college campuses, but yet we don't know very much about the nature of, of allyhood and uh, really in, through this study trying to help close that gap somewhat. This is Kevin. So I think my interest in bystander intervention and campus climate research for marginalized students stem from my own experiences and scholarship thus far as a graduate student around intergroup relations and social justice education in college. And I think specifically as a queer person of color who was bullied in my youth, I understand the importance of a safe and welcoming campus climate and the importance of change at an institutional level. And working with students as a teacher, working with students in conflict resolution and student housing, I've seen uh, various trajectories in terms of people's sensitivity and empathy to marginalized experiences that weren't their own. And this made me really interested in how to best support students who have the potential to navigate their privilege in ways that make a positive influence on the environment around them. Thank you. Michael, could you talk a little more about why you did this specific study and what is the current campus climate like for LGBT students in this country? So Diane, I'm going to start with your second question in terms of what the climate is like. And when we think about what we know about climate for LGBTQ students, that we would describe it as being unsafe, hostile, Certainly issues of discrimination have been well documented and that discrimination has ranges from subtle forms of discrimination such as exposure to the phrase that's so gay being sort of a common phrase that we hear on college campuses and in other school contexts as well to more blatant forms of discrimination. And we know that that then puts LGBTQ students at increased risk for negative outcomes such as you know, mental health concerns, depression, suicidality, leave leaving universities, you know, not doing as well uh, academically as one could because of the additional stressors that one feels related to the experiences of, of the campus. 
Certainly, when we think about other contexts in comparison, such as, you know, the general community or the K-12 system, is that, you know, some people would say that, hey, it's universities, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot safer. And, you know, we don't really know that. We just know that there's still issues of discrimination and exclusion that happen. So in terms of this study, we really wanted to move into, so how do we start addressing that? We have the discourse of ally programs and allies being so critical to interrupt discrimination, if that ranging from sexual assault and sexual violence and sexism on campuses. And there's been more work around that particular area, but really trying to understand, well, what are some of the factors that may foster pro-social, in other words, sort of supportive interventions for students who are LGBTQ who are experiencing discrimination. So we really tried to understand what some of those factors might be and thinking about how we could inform then policies and also interventions including training programs, and that may be conducted on campuses to foster that pro-social LGBT allyhood. Adrian, could you talk about why this is important to social work? Mm-hmm. So social workers have a not only a code of ethics, but really a professional mandate to do some things that I think sometimes don't always get focused on enough or need to be included really across the board in social work education. And some of the language in some of that around mandates and ethics has to do with eliminating domination, eliminating exploitation and discrimination and pursuing social justice. And I think related to what Michael was saying, I think people sometimes don't recognize the scaffolding that can happen, that there are comments that people can feel or seem to be innocuous that really can lead to much more serious consequences. And so it's important to recognize the progression of what can happen around bias and harassment and bullying on campuses. And also that social workers in particular, when they are working with populations on college campuses, need to be thinking about how to really be thinking about intervention and addressing these serious issues. And what do we know about bystander intervention? So in doing this paper, it was very interesting for me to read a little bit in the literature about some earlier studies that I think are still very relevant in terms of people who are witnessing harassment or bias going through a number of different stages. And I'll just try to summarize them. I think first people need to notice that this is happening and often in everyone's busy lives or, you know, thinking that this is not such a serious thing, these kinds of uh, statements that might be made or even more serious behaviors, that they actually need to notice that and they need to interpret it as something that needs intervention. And they also need to be able to accept responsibility for intervening. And this was part of our study was trying to understand what are the different variables that affect whether someone would maybe have the intention to intervene. They also need to have skills. Bystanders need to know how to intervene, and then they need to have the confidence, or they might need other factors, as we're going to talk about, that really lead them to intervening. And so, you know, when we were looking at intention to intervene, we were taking all of that into account in our variables that we were examining. I know that in your study, 
you were interested in looking at the peer familiarity context, who is involved in the situation, and does the nature of the likelihood of intervening vary depending upon the peer context? Kevin, could you talk more about the peer familiarity context, what you all mean by that, and how you assessed it? Absolutely. So in terms of peer familiarity context, we understand that college students are very social creatures. So we understood that there was likely, a, if we were just asking students to tell us if whether or not they would intervene, that it would depend on a lot of contextual situations. But it's particularly important for us to think about how people are intervening with people that they know around them, as well as in situations where everyone is strangers to them and that they are just kind of happening upon uh, this kind of behavior. And so we assess peer familiarity context looking at four different contexts in these hypothetical scenarios of discrimination. And so we asked them about their intention to intervene when knowing no one in the scenario, when knowing only the witnesses or the target of the discrimination in the scenario, knowing only the perpetrator of the discrimination in the scenario, and also their intention to intervene when they knew everyone present. And so we assessed their intention to intervene on a scale of one to seven in three different vignette situations that they were reading. One vignette discussed overhearing gay jokes or negative comments being said. Another scenario was witnessing unfair treatment of someone who is hypothetically perceived to be LGBT or witnessing uh, verbal harassment, so using anti-gay pejoratives against someone perceived to be LGBT. And so we asked their intention to intervene in these scenarios across these four different peer familiarity contexts, knowing no one, and then the other contexts with varying degrees of knowing people in the scenario. And what were your main hypotheses? So we wanted to look at both students' individual differences, so their the student inputs, as well as students' kind of collective experiences on campus. Uh, and so we assessed students, you know, demographic, their gender, their race, their religion, their age. We assessed their self-esteem and their attitudes towards LGBT people. And we also assessed collective experiences, so having LGBT friends and acquaintances, whether or not they've taken coursework that has a focus on social justice content or LGBT content, as well as their perceptions and experiences of the uh, campus climate for LGBT people. And so our main hypotheses were that intentions to intervene would be higher among students who are women, who are white, those who are non-religious, those with higher self-esteem and more affirming LGBT attitudes and liberal political ideology would be more likely to intervene. And we also thought that those with uh, LGBT acquaintances and friends who had taken more courses with social justice and LGBT content would be more likely to intervene. We didn't have an hypothesis for campus climate. And to be clear, we, we measured campus climate by whether or not they perceived the university as being welcoming of LGBT students to be open about their identity. We assessed their personal experiences of identity neutral mistreatment, so such as uh, experiencing physical threats on campus, as well as witnessing heterosexist harassment on campus. So, you know, witnessing someone saying that's so gay, for example. And uh, the inclusion of these variables was exploratory. So we didn't have any specific hypotheses for those.
Did you find any differences on intentions to intervene based on peer familiarity context? Absolutely. We found overall that students were least likely to intervene when they knew no one. And uh, this peer familiarity context was significantly different in intentions to intervene as compared to the other three contexts, which had varying levels of familiarity. And so what that suggests overall is that knowing no one in the situation represents a higher risk context for intervening. And in the other contexts, students felt much more likely to intervene, suggesting that with higher levels of familiarity, bystander intervention becomes a bit more easy to occur. And what are your overall conclusions from your study? So we found that older female, interestingly, students who identified as conservative Christian and Protestant, students who had reported higher self-esteem and reported more affirming attitudes, reported higher intention to intervene. We also found a positive association between LGBT attitudes and all outcomes. That was our largest effect size. We found a positive association between self-esteem and intention to intervene across all outcomes. And as I mentioned, uh, interestingly, for religion, compared to secular students, conservative Christian students were more likely to report intention to intervene when knowing the witness or target and knowing the perpetrator. We also found some important differences when it related to, in respect to gender and how that played out differently in various peer familiarity contexts. So females indicated higher intentions to intervene than their male peers in three of the peer familiarity contexts, so in which they had medium or high level, whereas the opposite was observed when knowing no one. So which helps us understand that, as Kevin was talking about, sort of the nature of the risk that may be involved and maybe for male students that they may not feel that there's so much at risk intervening when they don't know anyone. And some existing research helps to support that as well. We also found that the experience or the context really matters also. So across all of our different peer familiarity contexts, so each of those four contexts, that students who had LGBTQ friends, so having at least one friend increased the likelihood that somebody reported that they were going to intervene. So that really says to us that intergroup contact and those relationships are important as well. And finally, we found some important differences by peer familiarity contexts when considering campus climate in terms of student experiences. In contexts where they knew no one in the scenario, having a perception of a positive campus climate for LGBT folks was actually negatively associated with intentions to intervene. So this suggests that you know blindness to the school's culture of heterosexism towards LGBT students may uh, lessen their intention to intervene. They may think that it's not as big of a deal and that they may not need to intervene as much. And so more work needs to be done in terms of raising awareness about negative campus climate, particularly for those that the negative LGBT climate doesn't affect, namely heterosexual students. And also in the peer familiarity context of knowing witnesses or the target, it was found that witnessing heterosexism 
around you, not directly experiencing it, was negatively associated with intentions to intervene. And so this kind of points to the importance of addressing heterosexism in the campus climate, because students that are witnessing more of that then had a less likelihood of intending to intervene, suggesting that this may seem more normal to them. And is there any other implications of your study that any of you would like to mention, or have you mentioned all of them? I would add that we need educational programs, specifically around attitudes. So improving student attitudes in terms of inclusion of sexual minority people on campuses. The implication for self-esteem was an interesting one. I mean, I think we always want to foster student self-esteem, but clearly the more students were feeling good about themselves, the more they were interested in helping others. I would also add, as we think about the findings related to gender, obviously we look at these high-risk situations and the finding that male students are more likely to report intentions to intervene when they don't know anyone. Clearly there's something that's happening there that we really need to try to understand more and try to address. And so maybe some programming needs to specifically engage female students and explore their intentions to intervene and their actual maybe providing some additional tools that may be helpful in intervening in these kinds of situations. And the fact that we find that the environment really matters in terms of who you know, and it's a complicated situation. It's a bit of a catch-22 in that, you know, we find that knowing more LGBTQ people or knowing LGBTQ people helps to foster one's intentions to intervene across all of the pure contexts. Great. But yet, if we're in a hostile environment where people are not intervening, then how likely is it that somebody may be out as a sexual or gender minority? And then how do we create those opportunities? So it really highlights the fact that we need to be addressing the climate and really fostering that, I think, both prevention and intervention when a hostile climate is occurring. So that would be some of the things that I think are really salient takeaways from our study as well. So what recommendations would you make to colleges and universities around programming? Okay, I'll jump in on this one. Ally programming should, first of all, be thinking about addressing attitudes. And again, biased attitudes or misinformation that people may have about LGBT populations. Also thinking, as we mentioned earlier, about pro-social bystander intervention and how that relates to gender, how that relates to self-esteem. Interventions and programming should also foster intergroup contact and personal relationship building through things such as intergroup dialogue courses. Social justice course content should also be promoted on college campuses, as we found that to be a significant variable. And then thinking again about what are the motivators for students and what are the barriers in terms of other types of research that might need to happen. And I think, I think as Adrian just said, Diane, that we, we want to think about ally programs and what can be done there, but also so many of these implications go beyond ally programs. It's about the what we're teaching in our classes and even the idea that I could start to develop a relationship with somebody who identifies as LGBT, and but yet we have this sort of contradiction of classes of 300 people. So intimate relationships, personal relationships, friendships aren't 
necessarily going to develop. So then what can we do through extracurricular activities and such to be able to foster that? So it feels like such a complicated situation. And in a way, the system is being set up so that individuals are not necessarily having those opportunities. So again, how do we go beyond ally programs? How do we integrate discussions of, of biases into other courses? How do we integrate it into extracurricular activities, but also how we give students feedback so that we're fostering a positive sense of who they are and all of these things then can potentially have positive implications for pro-social ally intervention. Adrian, you mentioned just a few moments ago you mentioned intergroup dialogues. Could you just briefly define what intergroup dialogues are so that our listeners will know? Sure. So intergroup dialogue, the way that um, we work on the, the program on intergroup relations at Michigan, these are face-to-face facilitated by peers in our program courses that happen between roughly equal numbers of members of two or more social identity groups. So we offer intergroup dialogue courses on race, gender, sexual orientation, ability, and so on, that are between groups that have a history of conflict and social inequality. And the purpose of intergroup dialogue courses is to, number one, raise consciousness about social inequality, Number two, to learn specific communication methods to talk across social differences and inequality, to build relationships so that we actually can get to know each other across these divides, and then to strengthen individual and collective capacity for social justice. Great. That sounds like a wonderful topic for a future podcast. (laughs) So what other research is needed? around college and university climates for LGBTQ students? Well, I guess I'll take this. This is Kevin. So in terms of research needed in the future, um, we need more research that is assessing actual intervention behaviors. So uh, this is kind of a limitation of our own research, right, that we're looking at people's intention to intervene, but we don't know much about how that actually plays out on the ground or about really how people would be intervening and the impact of that intervention on the uh, space. We also need a better understanding about the relationship between attitudes, intentions, and actual behavior, but also distinguishing among uh, the sexual orientation and uh, gender identity of the targets of discrimination. So our research talked about LGBT jokes and talked about there being someone who is perceived to be LGBT, but we didn't really talk very specifically about who this person is, what they look like, how they act, whether or not they are gender conforming, and that may impact people's intention to intervene. We also need more research with a wider range of geographic diversity, of heterosexual college students. You know, most uh, research tends to function in more liberal, larger institutional settings. And also looking at other predictors and mediators on interventions, such as, as Adrian mentioned earlier, confidence and skills to intervene, looking at social desirability, identity impression management, and other barriers to intervening. It's also important to look at sexual minorities, a willingness to intervene, and LGBTQ bias incidents. 
So expanding our conceptualizations of allyhood and looking at how sexual minority students perceive their own agency on improving their own campus climate and making contact safer for LGBT students and for the wider population more generally. I also think that personally that other research needs to examine campus climate across multiple intersections of inequality. That would make sure that we are looking to the margins, looking at people that negotiate multiple stigmatized and marginalized experiences. For example, you know, heterosexism and homophobia with racism and sexism, for example, as Michael mentioned earlier, thinking about sexual assault and harassment in relation to homophobia and heterosexism. You know, this is really an opportunity to researchers. If, if we understand what best supports those who are most at risk, we can create a more accessible and inclusive and equitable environment for everyone. I was curious about whether you think your study has implications for research and interventions aimed at understanding and reducing racism on college campuses. You know, and you just mentioned, Kevin, intersectionality. So I don't know, is there anything else that you would like to say about that? Well, I think in terms of this study, we looked at students that identified as completely heterosexual. And in this particular context, they may struggle with allyhood because intervening could call into question their own sexuality or heterosexuality. But the you know, bystander intervention around issues of race would have different costs and benefits. And it would, of course, differ if they were white students or students of color, whether or not that kind of racism was about a specific group or more generally. I think we would still expect consistent patterns in terms of the importance of attitudes towards marginalized groups, that, you know, the importance of intergroup friendships and strong relationships, having high self-esteem. But if we were to think about this in terms of racism, we would probably want to think about racism in more modern and microaggression kind of informed racist discrimination. People are very keen not to look racist, especially when the racism is explicitly and overtly derogatory and harming as in our scenarios. So, you know, in order to assess that, you would probably be looking at kind of different kind of scenarios and vignettes than the ones that we assessed rather than just, you know, replacing LGBT with racial minority. Right. Okay, thank you. Well, I think we may be at the end. Is there anything that you would like to add, Adrian, Michael, Kevin? There was a couple of things I was just thinking of as you were discussing the uh, sort of future research. And I guess one of the areas also is the effectiveness of training. And so when we have programs, how effective are they? And I think part of that also means building on this work to look at are there other barriers that we, we just don't understand yet. I think that's an important area for us to move into. And I one of the sort of things I also want us to to think about, and, and I think especially as, as social workers and people doing social justice work is that how do we really create safe spaces? And so we're talking about intervening in these situations when discrimination happens, but yet how do we stop discrimination from happening? That's, I think, a grand challenge for social work. How do we continue that? When we look at universities and campuses have policies in place, but yet discrimination still happens. So how do we really change, how do we change hearts so that uh, you know, we don't need to have this conversation 10, 15 years from now? Okay. Well, thank you 
Thank you all so much. Mm-hmm. You're welcome for having you. us. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Diane. That was great. You've been listening to Dr. Adrian Dussel, Dr. Michael Woodford, and Kevin Goodman discuss heterosexual bystanders' intentions to intervene with LGBT discrimination on college campuses on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.